The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, your mercies are new every morning. And every day that we wake up and live, we should be able to see just the, the depth of your love more and more. Father, we are eternally grateful for the love in which you, you had for us. You sent your son to live a, a perfect life for us in a broken world, to die on the cross for us that he did not deserve, and to then offer us salvation. Father, help just that reality to mark our lives. For those who are weak and frail and struggling this morning, help that reality to come in and bolster their souls that they are saved not by the works of their hands, what they do, who they are, what they've done, but by their faith in you. Lord, I pray now as we get to look at your word again, we get to see your gospel on display in Jesus's life. We get to see unworthy sinners come to faith. Lord, just help us to better rest and trust in your word, in your name, amen. Well, I would invite you to turn to the uh, book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where we are continuing in our study of the Gospel. We are going to be rounding out chapter 4 this morning. The Gospel of John has been filled with contrasting elements. The prologue opened with these contrasting elements. It opened with elements like darkness and light. The light came into the world and the world was dark. It spoke about the Word and the Spirit taking on flesh. Those are some two contrasting elements there. We've seen how these well-meaning disciples assumed Jesus' ministry was going to look one way, and it's looking very different than that way that they assumed. We've seen uh, prophets declare, I must decrease and he must increase. These contrasting elements are a big part of where we've been, and it's going to be a big part of where we're going today. We are leaving the homes and lives of the Gentiles, as we've been looking at for the first part of this chapter. People who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, not because he performed any miracles or made their lives instantaneously better, but because he demonstrated that he knew the thoughts and hearts and intentions of men. These Gentiles, as we got to see last week, believed not because of any special physical miracle that was done to them, but because a Samaritan woman, a broken woman, the woman at the well came in and said, this man told me all that I have ever done. And as it says, after Jesus had been with them for two days, they believed, as verse 41 says, they believed because of his word. Well, today, we get to shift scenes slightly. Today, we're going to shift audiences and tones. We're going to leave the lives of the lowly and the broken, and we're going to enter the a life of an elite. It, but though our audience is changing, the grace of Christ never changes. And what we're going to see is that while our paths towards Christ might look a little different, they all end at the same destination of saying our only hope is him. So with that, I want to read our passage for this morning. It's going to be John 4, 34 through 54. It says this. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the 
Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, what hour when he began to get better? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. It's interesting, as John is moving this story along, we come to these transition uh, statements, these transition from one location to another, and none of them are throwaway, because obviously we have to see how Jesus' travels went all throughout Israel, but some of them are weightier than others, and this is one of those, because there is a uh, perceived contradiction in this transition. Now, the transition I'm talking about is verses 43 through 45. In fact, this um, uh, section of scripture here has been used to describe why we shouldn't trust the Bible because you shouldn't have contradictions in scripture. Now you might be going, what's the contradiction? Here's the contradiction. It opens up in verse 44 saying, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. Now, just to give you some background where Jesus came from, Jesus was, was from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was known to be from Nazareth. And Nazareth is a town in Galilee. So when he's traveling to Galilee, he's traveling to his homeland. But it says he has no honor in his hometown. So how is it that Jesus can receive honor in Galilee? Now, what's the contradiction here? Look at the next verse. And they and the Galileans welcomed him. That doesn't make sense. How can you not have honor in your hometown and at the same time be welcomed by Jesus? So as I said, this has been used to defend the argumentation that we can't trust the Bible. Now commentators, you would be shocked at how many pages have been poured out trying to unwind this perceived contradiction here. I mean, I have read quite a few pages this week describing how this all makes sense. There's 10 arguments that people offer for how this is not a contradiction. And I want to go over all 10. No, I'm not going to go over any of them, any of them with you this morning. But I am going to resolve this section. Because maybe you are out there and you are questioning, why can I trust scripture? And this is one of those passages that people point you to and say, see, it contradicts itself. And it's not even like a chapter later, it's a verse later. I mean, John says one thing and it looks like he says the exact opposite later. So how is it, if we are going to assume that both the statement that a prophet can't have honor his own hometown, this is also quoting like Mark 6 is, is the fuller section here, but if uh, that a prophet can't have honor in his own hometown and then his hometown welcomes him. How are those two statements possible? So let me ask you this question. How can you not honor somebody, but welcome them at the same time? It's assumed both of those things are true, but so how can you not honor somebody, 
but welcome that person? Or how can you welcome that person but not honor them? I think this is the answer to it. When you're using them for selfish gain. When you're excited that they're there, not because of them, but because of what you can get out of them. But you, because you actually don't really honor them for who they are. You're just there saying, hey, you're going to make this party better, this time better, my life better. And that is actually what we see happen in this text because Jesus points that out. If we look down in verse 48, when he, when he looks not only to the official, which we're going to get to that story in a minute, but also to the entire crowd, what does he say? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe me. You see, these Galileans, as I said, saw what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And Jesus had a lot of signs and wonders in Jerusalem. And they saw what he, how he healed people, how he made their lives better. And they're thankful now that, ooh, that guy came to our hometown. My life is about to be better because he's here. So, so they're thankful, not that Jesus is here for the fact that they can save his sins, but he's here for the fact that he can make my life better. They welcomed him because of their selfish gain. But here's the thing. It's even out of this selfish gain that we can continue to see Jesus's grace. Jesus knew this. He knew the first reason they want me here is because I can make their life easier. But he also knew, regardless of that, they need what I can offer. You see, as the gospel continues, we, we continue to see Jesus in greater detail and fuller light. And we start to see how he's willing to go to anyone and everyone regardless of their motives. This story as we move from the beginning of chapter four to now the end of chapter four um, has some uh, pretty uh, uh, extreme comparisons and contrasts. You know, as I said, the gospels has had these contrasts all along. Well, I just wanna offer you the contrast, the comparison between the first individual that we saw in chapter four and now the second individual that we see. The first individual that we saw, the last story that we've gotten to look at was a story of a scandalous woman. Her only notoriety was her sin. I mean, she was the epitome of being helpless and worthless. Everyone would look at Jesus and say, why are you helping her? She is beyond help. The only thing that she was known for was that she was hopeless and that she couldn't fix her own situation. And she had gotten there herself. She had made all of the wrong decisions and all the wrong turns in life. And so you could very easily say, you're just suffering the consequences for your own stupid actions. That was a scandalous woman that we looked at this last time. But the individual that we meet today, this official, what he was known for? Well, he was known for being a royal official. He was a notable man. It's safe to assume that he was a high-ranking officer in the service to Herod. Now, Herod isn't the king because that, they're a Roman province at this time, but he functions as a king. So this individual, as he's walking around, when it says a royal official, it doesn't say exactly who, but people would know who this guy is. You can only imagine this guy's life. The family heritage that he had to put him in this position to be a royal official. The schooling and the jobs that he held that allowed him to achieve this honored position. I'm sure he was a driven man, always wanting to move up the ladder and rank and status. Each step of the way in his life, he had gotten what he wanted. Imagine this guy, the plaques that were hanging on his wall, 
for the degrees, for the achievements, for all of, you know, the, all the things that he produced because of his dedication to his life's work. I mean, this guy was a guy that we would all want to be. I think it's important for us to see that. The first woman, none of us wanted to be. This guy, all of us wanted to be. He was a man of means. Because as we see in the story, uh, he has servants. So he was able to employ other people to work for him. But we also see that he was a family man. Because we meet this official on the worst day of his life. In earthly speaking. It's actually the best day of his life, spiritually speaking. Because he has finally come to a, situ- to a situation in his life that he can't fix through his own means. I think that's important for us to see that. I'm sure he tried to fix this through his own means. I'm sure that he searched out the finest physicians of the land to cure whatever his son was struggling with. I'm sure that he could afford round-the-clock care for his son so that his son would have the best shot at life. I'm sure that he has tried every possible thing in his arsenal of life to be able to heal this son, but he's finally come to a point where he goes, I can't do anything else. He gets to the point and goes, there's no solution. And so this official hears that this guy named Jesus is in, the name, is in the neighboring town of Cana. Hears that he's come back from Jerusalem. Word has already spread about what this guy did down there. And he thinks to himself, if my son has any hope at all, I got to go to that guy. So he journeys to Cana. It says that he was from Capernaum and he goes to Cana. Now that's about a 25 mile uh, uh, distance or journey that he has to go on. It's about 1,300 feet elevation. So this is not an easy task. And look what he did. This guy's a royal official. He could very easily look at any one of his servants, like the servant that was coming to find him the next day, and say, you go to Cana, you go find Jesus, and you drag him back here. But he doesn't do that. He leaves his son on his deathbed to go find this guy named Jesus. Let me ask you something, parent. If your child was dying, you knew there was no hope, would you really leave him? Or would you wanna be with him in his last hour? I point all this out because it demonstrates the desperateness that this guy has. He's at the end of his rope. Yeah, he might be an official. Yeah, people might know who he is. Yeah, he might be a man of means, but he's at the end of his rope and he realizes if there is any hope for my son, I must go to this guy named Jesus. So he leaves and he travels to Cana. And we see again this sensational contrast between now our savior and this official. This official rolls up in Cana with everyone knowing who he is. He displayed his honor and position wherever he went. He, he's, he's coming from a life not weighed down by the common plights of men. I mean, think about just all of the status symbols that he is naturally bringing with him. Imagine if in today's context, the royal official, the man of means came to see Jesus, how he would roll up to him. He would roll up in his normal entourage in the car that everyone wants with, I, I was just try, trying to think of like, who, who would this guy look like in this day and age? It's, I mean, it really is, he's gonna roll up in some expensive car, throw down some 
black Amex card that everyone wants, you know, that heavy one. Um, and then he's going to stay in like the nicest hotel rooms and he's going to go to our savior. Who, what is he known for? Isaiah 53, a savior who's known for no form of majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. This man of means, this royal official goes and seeks out a man that isn't living a life of luxury, is an ordinary man with carpenter hands, whose entourage of disciples shouldn't go anywhere near any affluent lifestyle or hotel. I mean, the, the, the comparison here is so stark and so distinct that we have to realize this guy realizes my only hope for my son is this man over here. I point out this contrast because regardless of what we've achieved in life, whether you are the Samaritan woman or whether you are this royal official, Christ in his gospel cuts through all of man-made economy and status symbols. And where are we all left? We're all left with nothing but our brokenness and need. This official gets it because he has a very simple question. Can you come and heal my son? If you had the ear of the king or the ear of the ruler, one of his options would be, hey, Herod, can you demand this guy come to my house? Can you send your soldiers and make him come here? He, this isn't him demanding Jesus come. This is him pleading with Jesus. Can you come and heal my son? This man is broken. He realizes that everything else in his life is nothing with this problem, that the only hope he has in this desperate situation is Jesus. And he comes and he pleads with him, can you come and heal my son? And look how Jesus replies. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This reply kind of seems a little cold and harsh, does it not? Like the guy's having the worst day in his life and Jesus turns around and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Well, it might look like Jesus' reply was cold or detached or unsympathetic, but it was actually a reply full of grace. Because as one commentator says, it was mercifully surgical reply. See, at this moment, what Jesus wanted to point out, not only to this man, but to the crowd is, why are you coming to me? Why are you searching for me? What are you trying to get out of me? It's so easy to hear about all of Jesus's miracles and hear about how Jesus makes our physical life easier that we approach him and say that our faith is dependent upon his performance in us. Or Jesus could say, are, are you just using me as a cheap parlor trick that it attracts attention? Or he, he, he could be going, am I only important if I make your life better? This is really what Jesus is, is asking the crowd in this man. He's saying, are you only gonna believe in me if I give you something that you need. So easily can we take Jesus and make him not our savior, but our self-help individual. Not, we, we, we take him and we don't see him as the savior of the world. We see as, as, as somebody who's just gonna make our temporal life better. That's all that these Galileans wanted from him at this moment. They were just looking for their life to become better now. 
And so he's looking at this man saying, are you just trying to use me to get back what you want, which is your son? And what I love is that he's got no reply here. He just, this official doubles down again. Sir, can you please come? My child is going to die. Something about this man, this official's response made it so Jesus didn't offer more attacks against, you know, a false faith. He simply looks at this man and says, go, your son will live. I wish I could hear Jesus's tone when he said this. Because this could be interpreted a couple of different ways. We could think Jesus saying, go, your son will live. Like, stop annoying me. I have better things to do. I don't think that's how he actually replied. I think this was him going, go, it'll be okay. He'll live. Imagine the turmoil that this guy has been living under for days. Is my son going to make it? Imagine the frenzy that he's been in trying to figure out this, this solution of how his son will live. He just wants to hear that it will be okay and he's been throwing every possible solution at it and to no avail, it all falls flat. And then Jesus says these very simple words, go, it's okay. Your son will live. And look what he does. He believes. And the man believed that the words that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And look how he went on his way. Picture, if you will, the desperate man journeying the 25 miles from Capernaum to Cana. I don't know whether it's horse, donkey, foot, I don't know, care. Whatever the means of transportation is, he is not stopping at go. He's going all, like he's going, he is going there as fast as he possibly can. That is the only thing on his mind. He has to get to Jesus. His son is going to die. I, I must get there now. Look when we see him journeying back to Capernaum. And as he was going down, his servant met him and he told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked him what hour when he began to get better. And he said, yesterday, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is around 1 p.m. And the father knew that, that that was the hour that Jesus said to him, your son will live. He didn't go home immediately. Can you imagine running to go see Jesus because that's the only hope you have. And what it demonstrates is he spent the night in Cana. I'm sorry, I don't think I would spend the night in Cana. I think I'd go back to see if my son was okay. But this man believed that Jesus' words were so good. It's like, okay, I got time. I got some business that I, that I have to do here. Let's go grab a bite to eat. Let's go sleep well. I mean, the, the anxiety from this man seems like it just went away. Because like, okay, no, now I'm slowly going back to see my son be okay. And the servant comes up to him and says, your son is recovered. As if he's like, oh, well, I should go tell my master so that he's not fretting in Cana that his son died. Because his servant saw the anxiety and weight on his own soul. So he's like, I should go tell my master so that he can stop worrying so much. And he finds him on the road and goes, yeah. His fever left him 
the moment Jesus said, your son will live. And what happens? This man in his household believed in Jesus. What's interesting is when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And yet in his mercy, he gave this man a sign and a wonder. And he in his household believed. When we start comparing this story with our last story, nothing in Jesus has changed. He's still the Messiah. He's still offering grace and mercy and living water. And it is in him that we have our hope and life. But when you compare how these two people came to the, to the realization that they needed Jesus, that is a very different picture. This man was brought to a moment of brokenness and despair so that he could see that his only hope was in Christ. Now, I say so that he could only, so that he could see that his only hope was in life in Christ, but every day his only hope has always been in Christ. The only difference here is that he sees that. The only difference here is he's brought to the end of all that he has and realizes that, oh yes, the only hope that I have in life and death is Jesus. It makes me think of what Jesus said at the end of the rich young ruler section in Matthew 19. You know, this rich young ruler who had it all, the man of means who came up and he could afford all of these things. I'm very much like this official. And, you know, this guy goes, how can I get in, in, into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, go sell everything. And why does he struggle with that? Because he's been trusting in all of that. But here's what Jesus says at the end of that in Matthew 19, 23 through 24. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Because at times, the pleasures and the gifts of this world blind us to the true reality of our need for him. Because in a life of means, we can lie to ourselves to say that we can take care of ourselves. I mean, that is our existence as Americans, is it not? This idea that I'm going to take care of myself, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to get everything that I can possibly have. I think the lesson that we have to learn here, some of us, yes, it is the first part of chapter 4. Many of us, it's the last part of chapter 4. It's this official that the Lord is going to break us of our pride and self-righteousness by bringing us to these points in our life when we have to step back and go, the only thing that I have here, the only thing that I can offer you, the only thing that I bring to the table is my brokenness and need. But unfortunately, the Lord at times has to break us of all of the other things in our life and the pride of saying that I can do it myself so that we can realize that he's our only hope. The gift that God allowed this man to receive, the gift that God gave this man in this situation was that he came to the end of himself and out of desperation, he had to look to Christ. Imagine he gets home, his son is better. He can begin to, to describe this story to him and how it goes. I thought you were lost and I tried every single possible way to save you. 
This doctor came and we tried that thing and, and this medication was applied to you. None of them worked. And we had no hope and you were a goner. And I found Jesus. And he simply spoke the words that you would be well and you were well. I realized that of all of the blessings that I have in this earth, son, the thing that we needed the most was this guy named Jesus from Galilee, the Messiah. What he needed to do was simply believe that Christ's words were true and he did. That's all that Jesus said. And what was this miracle? Go, your son will live. And he believed him. And in believing Christ, he placed his faith in him. And what did he place his faith in? Well, the fact that Christ's words are true. I want to do this as we close this morning. I want to ask some questions for us. Do you believe the words of Christ are true? Do you believe that what Christ says is true? Our salvation, our life in Christ is built upon the foundation that we believe the words of Christ are true. It's at the heart of all we do as a believer. For our salvation, we bring nothing to the table. If you are here this morning and you say, I'm saved because of look at all the stuff in my life that is good, you're trusting on the wrong thing. Our salvation is built upon the fact that when Christ said it is finished, that it is finished. It's built upon the, upon the fact that when he says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. It is built upon the fact that Christ's, we can believe that Christ's words are true. That's the foundation that we have as a believer that we look to him and go, I can trust that. For our obedience, we still have to trust that Christ's words are true because our flesh lies to us and says that sin is best because sin is pleasurable and fun. But what, what must we do? We must turn our eyes to the word of God, to the truth of scripture and trust that what God says is best, that how God informs us to live good and godly lives is actually what's best for us and we're not gonna listen to our bodies and our thoughts and our emotions and our world, but actually trust that what God says is best is best for assurance. I know there are some who they just can't seem to get to a point where they stop doubting their salvation. For some of you, you're just like, if he could do one thing, it would just be giving me a true assurance of my salvation. And we think to ourselves that the way that we get to assurance is by looking at what we do. The way that we get to assurance is by pointing to stuff and to actions. Actually, assurance comes from trusting that what Christ says is true. Because the immediate gift of the gospel is the assurance of our salvation. That doesn't come after the fact, after we've done so many things, after we've conquered certain sins. It's immediate because why our gospel is found in Christ, in Christ alone, and we're trusting in what he says is true. How about for our evangelism? How often have we looked at people and we think to ourselves, they're too far gone. They're hopeless because they've run down a road and they can't be brought back. But what does scripture say? First or second Peter three, Peter goes, he desires all to come to repentance. He says his word will not return void. So when we enter into those moments of evangelism, we don't enter in saying, 
this is a hopeless cause, but we say the word of God says that it will not return void. Therefore, I am going to spread the love of God indiscriminately to everyone that I possibly can. And I trust that it is going to do its work. And then last, truth. Truth itself. What is true? Our world throws at us so many different options of truth. And yet if we trust that Christ's words are true, we can look to the word of God and say, this is our ultimate authority. This man believed the words of Christ because he saw his son saved from his deathbed. And you might be thinking to yourself, but I haven't seen that, Ryan. So how can I trust that Christ's words are true when I haven't seen my son be raised from a deathbed, when I haven't seen a physical miracle, when I haven't gone through that moment. Maybe you haven't seen it. But we can read about people who have. This actually happened. There was a father in, in Capernaum whose son was sick, who ran to Cana, who asked Jesus to heal him, who Jesus said, your son will live, who went back to his home and his son lived. There are other miracles that we're going to look at. I mean, we, we're basically going to go from one miracle to the next for the next six chapters. It's going to be great. And you could think to yourself, I could only trust in the word of God, in God's words, when I actually physically see that myself. Here's the thing. You might not have seen your son, your physical son be raised from the dead. You might not have seen a physical miracle like one that we see here in scripture, but we can see people who have. Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the great cloud of witnesses. And it's looking at all of the Old Testament characters who trusted in Christ. But as believers, we are a part of that great cloud of witness. You can say, I don't trust because I've seen that, but I do trust that somebody has seen that and therefore I trust Christ. And so if you're here this morning and, and, and your faith is weak and you're just struggling to find what can I trust in, one of the answers is the body of Christ itself. Is that we strengthen each other's faith because when we are faithless, he is faithful. And when we are faithless, there's somebody around us to say, no, you can actually trust in the words of Christ. This man's life and this family's life was fundamentally changed this random Tuesday in first century AD because he heard Jesus say, your son will live. Maybe you're here today and you, this whole gospel thing is suspect. What are you actually believing in? What are you actually worshiping? Well, let me tell you this. What we're believing in is that on another day in first century AD, Jesus died on the cross for us. And that the way that we receive the gift that he is offering us is not by acts of service, is not by dedication, is not by us working hard enough for him to give it to us. It is simply by trusting in him by placing our faith in him, that what we need, what we desperately need, what we can't do ourselves 
is given to us as a gift. As we head towards communion this morning, if, if you believe in that reality, if you are part of the family of God, if you have placed your faith in him and you believe the words of Christ that it is finished and by grace we have been saved through faith, I would invite you to take this table with us this morning. If, if you're not believing yet, that's okay, we're glad you're here. But I would ask that you let the, these elements pass you by. This is a family meal, if you will. A, a meal that we take together to remind ourselves as, as the body of Christ, as the fellowship of believers, that what we're trusting in is not the works of our hands, but in his finished work on the cross. And if you're here and you're not believing and, and, and you have questions, come find me at the end of the service because I'd love to talk to you more about the amazing grace of God. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for your life and death and burial and resurrection. Thank you that at times you bring us to moments of desperation so that we can see that all of the other things that we're trusting in, all the other earthly pleasures and, 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 and personal giftings that we like to, to support ourselves with, Are worthless. Father, if there's anyone here today that, that maybe they're in that moment of despair. They're at the end of themselves. They've tried everything and they don't know where to turn. Lord, open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Help them see and hear your word and your promise that if they place their faith in you, you will receive them, you will accept them, that you will regenerate them, that you will give them what they need, you will declare them righteous. Father, thank you that we get to come here to, this morning and remind ourselves of that. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.